If you want to open your Bibles, right about halfway, you'll see the book of Ezekiel. And then you're going to turn to the very next book, the book of Daniel. It's on page 879 in your Blue Pew Bibles. This morning we're going to read from Daniel chapter 4. Hear the word of the Lord. King Nebuchadnezzar, to all peoples, nations, and languages that dwell in all the earth, peace be multiplied to you. It seemed good to me to show the signs and wonders that the Most High God has done for me. How great are His signs, how mighty His wonders. His kingdom is an everlasting kingdom, and His dominion endures from generation to generation. I, Nebuchadnezzar, was at ease in my house and prospering in my palace. I saw a dream that made me afraid. As I lay in the bed, the fancies and the visions of my head alarmed me. So I made a decree that all the wise men of Babylon should be brought before me, that they might make known to me the interpretation of the dream. Then the magicians, the enchanters, the Chaldeans, and the astrologers came in, and I told them the dream, but they could not make known to me its interpretation. At last, Daniel came in before me, he who was named Belteshazzar, to Shezar, after the name of my God, and in whom the, the spirit of the holy gods. And I told him the dream, saying, O Belteshazzar, chief of the magicians, because I know that the spirit of the holy gods is in you, and that no mystery is too difficult for you. Tell me the visions of my dream that I saw and their interpretation. The visions of my head as I lay in bed were these. I saw, and behold, a tree in the midst of the earth, and its height was great. The tree grew and became strong, and its top reached to the heaven, and it was visible to the end of the whole earth. Its leaves were beautiful, and its fruit abundant, and in it was food for all. The beasts of the field found shade under it, and the birds of the heavens lived in its branches, and all flesh was fed from it. I saw in the visions of my head, as I lay in bed, and behold, a watcher, a holy one, came down from heaven. He proclaimed aloud and said thus, Chop down the tree and lop off its branches. Strip off its leaves and scatter its fruit. Let the beasts flee from under it and the birds from its branches. But leave the stump of its roots in the earth, bound with a band of iron and bronze amidst the tender grass of the field. Let him be wet with the dew of heaven. Let his portion be with the beasts and the grass of the earth. Let his mind be changed from a man's. And let a beast's mind be given to him, and let seven periods of time pass over him. The sentence is by the decree of the watchers, the decision of the word of the holy ones, to the end that the living may know that the Most High rules the kingdom of men and gives it to whom he will and sets it over the lowliness of men. This dream I, King Nebuchadnezzar, saw, and you, O Belteshazzar, tell me the interpretation, because all the wise men of my kingdom are not able to make known to me the interpretation, but you are able, for the spirit of the holy gods is in you. Verse 19, then Daniel, whose name was Belteshazzar, was dismayed for a while, and his thoughts alarmed him. The king answered and said, Belteshazzar, let not the dream or the interpretation alarm you. Belteshazzar answered and said, My Lord, may the dream be for those who hate you, and its interpretation for your enemies. The tree you saw which grew and became strong, 
so that its top reached to heaven and was visible to the end of the whole earth, whose leaves were beautiful and its fruit abundant, in which was food for all, under which beasts of the field found shade, in whose branches the birds of heavens lived. It is you, O king, who have grown and become strong. Your greatness has grown and reaches to heaven, your dominion to the ends of the earth. Because the king saw a watcher, a holy one, coming down from heaven and saying, Chop down the tree and destroy it, but leave the stump of its roots in the earth, bound with a band of iron and bronze in the tender grass of the field, and let him be wet with the dew of heaven. Let his portion be with the beasts of the field till seven periods of time pass over him. This is interpretation, O king. It is a decree of the Most High, which has come upon my Lord the King, that you shall be driven from among men, and your dwelling shall be with the beasts of the field. You shall be made to eat grass like an ox, and you shall be wet with the dew of heaven, and seven periods of time shall pass over you. So you know that the Most High rules the kingdom of men and gives it to whom he will. And it was commanded to leave the stump of the roots of the tree. Your kingdom shall be confirmed for you for a time that you know that you know that heaven rules. Therefore, O king, let my counsel be acceptable to you. Break off your sins by practicing righteousness and your iniquities by showing mercy to the oppressed, that there may perhaps be a lengthening of your prosperity. All this came upon King Nebuchadnezzar. At the end of 12 months, he was walking on the roof of his royal palace in Babylon. And the king answered and said, Is not this great Babylon, which I have built by my mighty powers, a royal residence, and for the glory of my majesty? While the words were still in the king's mouth, there fell a voice from heaven. O King Nebuchadnezzar, to you it is spoken. The kingdom has departed from you. And you shall be driven from among men, and your dwelling shall be with the beasts of the field, and you shall be made to eat grass like an ox. And seven periods of time shall pass over you until you know that the Most High rules the kingdom of men and gives it to whom he will. Immediately the word was fulfilled against Nebuchadnezzar. He was driven from among men and ate grass like an ox, and his body was wet with the dew of heaven till his hair grew as long as eagle's feathers, and his nails were like bird's claws. At the end of the days, I, Nebuchadnezzar, lifted my eyes to heaven, and my reason returned to me, and I blessed the Most High in praise and honored him who lives forever, for his dominion is an everlasting dominion, and his kingdom endures from generation to generation. All the inhabitants of the earth are counted as nothing, and he does according to his will among the host of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth. None can stay his hand or say to him, What have you done? At the same time, my reason returned to me, and for my glory and the glory of my kingdom and majesty and splendor returned to me. My counselors and my Lord sought me, and I was established in my kingdom, and, I st- and still more greatness was added to me. Now I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise and extol and honor the King of heaven, for all his works are right and his ways are just. And those who walk in pride, he is able to humble. This is the word of the Lord.
thanks. Thanks, guys. We are not alone. We have our God. We have each other. But we're also connected. We're connected with believers around this community, around the state, around the country, around the world, all gathering together, connected in our Lord Jesus Christ, being given the power, the most greatest, most powerful tool in the universe, the power of prayer, made powerful by God himself. He invites us to prayer, he hears our prayers, and so now let's pray together for our people and our world. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, as we go through this Daniel study, we admire the faith and the courage and the wisdom and the obedience of Daniel in Babylon. And we recognize that we too live in Babylon, a world that is not home. Help us never to get so comfortable that we call this world home. But like Daniel, Lord, you called us. We recognize that you called us to be here, to live here. You chose us to be here. So, Lord, help us, we pray. Help us to have the faith we need, like Daniel, the courage we need, the wisdom we need. Help us to have the obedience we need. Amidst all of the issues that we see all around the world, rising tensions around the world, tragedies and disappointments and scary things everywhere, people are looking for the very things that you've given each of us, that you've equipped us with. People are looking for it, they're thirsting for it, for faith and for courage and for wisdom and for love and joy, peace, patience, kindness, gentleness, self-control. You've given those things to us. Thank you for those gifts and people thirst for those things. So help us to live it like Daniel. Help us to give it away every chance we get. We lift up our world today, we lift up our community, we lift up our people. Let's all think right now, someone that we know, someone from our prayer list here at the church, or someone that we know in our family, or maybe in our neighborhood, our workplace. We're all thinking of someone right now, Lord, and we lift them up to you. Give them wisdom, give them courage, give them faith, give them obedience. Give them love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, gentleness, self-control. Give them you, Lord, through your Son, Jesus Christ, and by the power of the Holy Spirit. Give them you. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Before I get into Daniel 4, I just wanted to start with a personal, uh, just a personal statement. I remember standing right here about five years ago and uh, saying to all you, pastoral ministry really begins when people in the pew, they look in, to the left and to the right, and they say, you know what, our pastor really loves us. And so I've just been reminded of this love on Friday. I had the joy, privilege of taking dinner to Dot Vance and her family as she's on hospice, just a stalwart of prayer 
of faith and hope and love for our church family over many, many years. Last night, Saturday, I had the joy and privilege of taking a meal to a young couple that had a, a celebrating the birth of their daughter, uh, Margaret, Nathan, and Hannah. And, and so I just was reminded this weekend, I'm often reminded as folks come into session meetings or as folks come into this church family, it is wonderful to love a church family. And I just want to say I love you and so thankful for you. And I just have a joy being a pastor here at Trinity Wellsprings Church. And just as a personal note, our family, I think, has been on quarantine three or four times. <laughs> uh, Drew got to preach a few of those at last minute and uh, over the last three or four months. And I just remember during September and October, the way that you loved our family really well. So many days I would get home as Lisa was struggling with long-haul symptoms, and she would tell me, you know, so-and-so brought dinner for me, old saints, younger saints, everybody in between, and uh, we just felt loved as a family, and we just want to say thank you if we didn't say that before. Uh, I remember getting home one night and said, uh, there was a saint from the church, came over, she saw the the mountain of uh, laundry in our living room and just decided to hop in. And she said, and by the way, uh, so-and-so might have folded your underwear. And I was like, I could have done without knowing this kind of thing. That's a lot of love. That's a lot of love right there. And so I just want to say thank you for being this church family to me, to my family, and and opening your hearts to the kind of love that I think should exist between pastor and congregation. I also want to say that during this time, as we're coming out of pandemic, there's maybe two temptations or two failures that confront the church of Jesus Christ. And one, it's a failure of nerve. And second, it's a failure of heart. What do I mean by that? Well, a failure of heart is really rooted in love. And so failure of heart can be the ways that our culture at this moment is trying to separate relationships one from another. And so my challenge to you as the body of Christ, don't have a failure of heart. Keep connected. Keep the bonds of love in Jesus Christ between your brother and your sister in Christ. Don't Let us fail from failure of heart. Be connected to the body of Christ. The second is a failure of nerve. What do I mean by that? Well, nerve is grounded in a future hope. In a sense, we uh, are living in a very hopeless day right now, 22 months after the pandemic. And so my challenge to you also, not only don't have a failure of heart, but also don't suffer a failure of nerve. Continue to believe in the promises of God, that God has a purpose for our church to make disciples, to overflow into our community and world. God has a plan and a purpose for our unique expression of the body of Christ right here for this season, and you're a part of it. 
And so if you can see yourself and feel yourself drifting, either experience a failure of nerve, being hopeless, or having a failure of heart, not being grounded in love, maintain both. This is the challenge of our times and for the challenge of our church. Let's pray. God, we and I, we thank you for your great love for us. Lord, we love only because you first loved us. And so we pray that you would allow us as a church body to love well, to love each other well through these days, not to suffer a failure of heart nor a failure of nerve, but to continue to overflow with the mission and the purpose that you have for us in this place. And we ask it by your Holy Spirit, by sending your Holy Spirit, you would allow us to do and live in that. In Christ's name we pray, amen. As we turn to Daniel chapter 4 this morning, three points for us confront us with this very interesting chapel, chapter. First, Daniel's prophetically warm heart. Second, King Nebuchadnezzar's cold, kingly way. And third, God's sovereign rule which opposes the proud. First, Daniel's prophetically warm heart. As you might uh, know, reading through the prophets, and our church probably hasn't preached through a prophet in over a decade, uh, with the exclusion of Jonah, but he doesn't really count. He's so easy to preach through. The big whale. A prophetic calling is a very hard calling. My guess is that if any one of us received an Old Testament prophetic calling, that most of us would begin to shake and tremble in our boots. A prophet speaks truth to power, which often puts their lives in danger, like the prophet Elijah, confronting King Ahab and Jezebel, confronting the prophets of Baal on Mount Carmel. I love it when Elijah taunts the prophets of Baal, shout louder! Surely Baal is a god. Perhaps he's deep in thought or, or busy or, or traveling. Maybe he is sleeping and must be awakened. A prophet brings hidden sins to light, as when the prophet Nathan looked da uh, King David, the most powerful man in Israel, looks him square in the eye and says, You are the man. You are the man who stole a poor man's single solitary sheep as he confronts David with the sins against Bathsheba and Uriah the Hittite. A prophet is a spur in the saddle of the people of God, reminding them to practice justice and mercy like the prophet Amos, but let justice roll down like waters and righteousness like an ever-flowing stream. One of Martin Luther King Jr.'s most memorable channeling and mimicking of an Old Testament prophet of old. And so a prophet speaks truth to power. A prophet brings hidden sins to light. A prophet reminds the people of God to practice justice and mercy for the oppressed and downtrodden in their midst. A prophet also holds out hope in the face of hopelessness to the people of God. There is coming the day of the Lord. A day of judgment is coming. Repent and turn from idols. One day the Messiah will be born, and one day that Messiah will reign and rule over all the earth. 
And so it's a little bit surprising that given Daniel's prophetic calling, which on the spectrum, if you think about it, on the spectrum of grace and truth, prophets almost always tilt to the side of truth. There is a truth coming for you, whether you're ready or not. Buckle up. That on that spectrum, Daniel displays a perfect blend of compassion and kindness and hope for King Nebuchadnezzar alongside a plain truth-telling of the danger that confronts him should he continue in his ways. That is, in the life of David, we see warm-hearted compassion and kindness combined with a simple commitment to truth-telling based on obedience to Yahweh. Listen to how Daniel responds to King Nebuchadnezzar here in chapter 4. Because again, Nebuchadnezzar had had a dream. Again, he calls all the philosophers and wise men of Babylon. Again, no one but Daniel is able to be summoned and interpret the dream in all the realm. And again, the dream represents a severe truth and a severe judgment against Nebuchadnezzar and his rule. And so the dream is this. There is a great tree in the midst of the earth about to be chopped down. And the judgment will be this. A man will be given the mind of a beast for seven periods of time or seven years. And Daniel knows that this severe judgment of God is for none other than King Nebuchadnezzar. How does Daniel respond? Let me step back for a moment. I want to ask you to place yourself in Daniel's shoes. To give yourself for a moment a prophetic burden and a prophetic calling. Let's review the information. Nebuchadnezzar has put a siege on your city, your beloved city of Jerusalem, has pillaged items from the temple and put them before his gods, has made you an exile in a foreign land, ripping you apart by force from your extended family, has changed your name in an attempt to wipe away and erase and whitewash your religious identity and faith. Almost put you to death if you hadn't told him and interpreted his previous dream and put your three friends in a burning, fiery furnace for refusing to bow the knee to a golden image. How would you react? Nebuchadnezzar is cruel. You know Nebuchadnezzar is vindictive. And he often flies off the handle in fits of rage. And you know the dream. Judgment is coming for him. How do you feel? Is your first thought, it's about time, Lord? Is your second thought, this pagan king is going to get what is coming to him? How do we react when Babylon is home? A secular moral revolution is underfoot, changing the very landscape of America as much as the 1960s. How do we react? Do we hate the sin and blame the sinner? Accuse the sinner 
Find no compassion for the sinner? Make no friends with the sinners? How do we love our neighbor who is constantly being bombarded by the ethics and the ways of the world which stand in opposition to Christian truth and against the Christian story of redemption? Do we show compassion? Do we show a warm-hearted kindness and compassion to our neighbor when we live in Babylon? So how does Daniel respond? Look at verse 19 of chapter 4. It says, Then Daniel, whose name was Belteshazzar, was dismayed for a while, and his thoughts alarmed him. The king answered and said, Belteshazzar, let not the dream or the interpretation alarm you. Belteshazzar answered and said, My Lord, may the dream be for those who hate you, and its interpretation for your enemies. Here's the truth about Daniel. Daniel takes no pleasure in speaking a severe truth. He shows compassion and kindness. When he hears the dream, he is appalled and dismayed. He does not simply fear for his own life, but for the judgment also coming upon the king. He wishes that the dream might fall upon the king's enemies. In fact, Daniel holds the king's predicament, as it were, close to his own heart. Then he says this in verse 27. He even counsels the king, break off your sins by practicing righteousness and your iniquities by showing mercy to the press that there perhaps may be a lengthening of your prosperity. Does Daniel recognize that Nebuchadnezzar too was made in the very image of God? That Nebuchadnezzar, like all of us, desperately need the mercy of God at every moment of his life? Why do we often have a very hard time showing kindness and compassion to those who do not believe like us, look like us, talk the political talk like we talk it? Every time, every time the church becomes an echo chamber for one race, one group, one political faction, the church of Jesus Christ has gone off track. But here, Daniel is speaking to a tyrant with kindness and compassion. And yet, his kindness and compassion does not prohibit him from speaking the hard word of truth. Daniel does not hem and haw. He doesn't lose his nerve. He doesn't soften the truth. He doesn't backpedal from the word of God with a thousand but ifs. Oh, yeah, uh, uh, but, 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 but. He speaks the hard word in a culturally hard environment. And friends, this is also the challenge of the church today. He says to the king, You are the great tree. That will be cut down. And then he says this in verse 24 and 25. He says, it is a decree of the Most High, which has come upon you, my Lord the King, that you shall be driven from among men, and your dwelling shall be with the beasts of the field. You shall be made to eat grass like an ox. Daniel was reticent to speak the hard truth out of love, 
yet moved by the compulsion of obedience to speak that truth anyway. And so, friends, if you are too eager to speak a hard word of God, check your heart. Make sure you are speaking with the compassion and the kindness and love that flow from God the Father. And yet, if you are too reticent to speak the hard word of God, check your heart. Ask yourself, are you seeking to please men or are you seeking to please God? Daniel spoke the hard word in the hard way, in a hard cultural environment. First point, Daniel's prophetically warm heart. Second, Nebuchadnezzar's cold, kingly way. And so Daniel had offered this counsel to King Nebuchadnezzar in verse 27. Break off your sins by practicing righteousness. Show mercy to the press. Perhaps there may be a lengthening of your prosperity. Yet 12 months later, Nebuchadnezzar has not changed his ways. Look at verse 29 and 30. It says, at the end of 12 months... God gives patience to Nebuchadnezzar because God is a patient God. At the end of 12 months, Nebuchadnezzar was walking on the roof of the royal palace of Babylon. And the king answered and said, Is not this great Babylon, which I have built by my mighty power as a royal residence and for the glory of my majesty? Nebuchadnezzar is the kind of king who loves to make much of himself. Nebuchadnezzar loves to be the center of his own universe. Nebuchadnezzar loves to grab the credit, hog the glory, and get all the fame. You see, Nebuchadnezzar suffers from the sin of all sins, the sin of pride and making much of himself. Now, many of you may have recently received the famous Christmas update from family and friends. Now, it is really good, and I love to hear from family and friends. So if you are one that sends me one of these letters, do not stop. I love to hear it. But really, if we're honest, only to a point, right? What happens when you get that Christmas card and your first thought, because you are a sinner, is that their lives, their family picture, their vacations are way better than mine. I don't know if you have ever gotten a Christmas letter like this. It's been a great year for the lamplighters. Greg had been hoping for a promotion, but what a surprise when the CEO begged him to take over the company. The whole office chipped in and gave us a three weeks in Paris to celebrate. Of course, Jeannie has been busy as well. You might have seen on Channel 6 News how she rescued a school bus full of children from that kidnapper, armed with only a plastic comb and a spork. <laughs> How wonderful that the holiday poem she wrote for last year's letter will be chiseled forever into the Library of Congress. The twins did so well at the state's tap dancing championship that Steven Spielberg is crafting a movie about their young lives. Greg Jr.'s fourth grade science project fair was a talk of much excitement in the New England Journal of Medicine. What do you do when you get letters like this from the lamplighters? Sometimes in your dark moments, you want to start a little fire on your patio and burn the whole perfect update. <laughs> Pastor seems a little unstable today. Where does this impulse come from? It's pride. Pride not only on the part of this fictional lamplighter family, but pride also wells up in us. 
How can they have such a perfect family and a perfect year and a perfect photograph and the perfect vacations? If I could live with any other family, I would pick their family. Not mine, oh God. That's the one. I'm going for this, oh Lord. That's the kind of life I'm going for, Lord. C.S. Lewis in Mere Christianity says this, pride is essentially competitive. It is competitive by its very nature. Pride gets no pleasure out of having something, only out of having more of it than the next man. We say that people are proud of being rich or clever or good-looking, but they are not. They are proud of being richer or cleverer or better-looking than others. If someone else became equally rich or clever or good-looking, there would be nothing to be proud about. It is comparison that makes you proud. My stuff, my life, my family, my job, my church, my way of doing things is better than the way you do things. See, this Lewis says the pleasure of being above the rest. Once the element of competition of God, pride is gone. That is why I say that pride is essentially competitive in a way that the other vices are not. This is one vice in which no man in the world is free, which everyone in the world loathes when he sees it in someone else. There is no fault which makes a man more unpopular and no fault which we are more unconscious of in ourselves. The more we have it in ourselves, the more we dislike it in others. You've probably heard the famous quote about pride. Pride cometh what? I wasn't thinking of that one. I was thinking the one that says, pride cometh before eating grass in the field like an ox. This is the one that comes from Daniel chapter 4. And so look what happens to Nebuchadnezzar in his pride. You shall be made to eat grass like an ox until you know that the Most High rules the kingdom of men. First, Daniel's prophetically warm heart. Second, Nebuchadnezzar's cold and proud kingly way. And finally, the Lord's sovereign rule, which opposes the proud. As you read Daniel from front to back, there's a clear message running throughout the book. The Lord is sovereign. Only the Lord reigns and rules over the affairs of men. The Lord sets up kings, and the Lord removes kings. Only the Lord is sovereign. Despite exile, despite suffering, despite disappointment, for the people of God. God still reigns from his throne. And so three times in chapter 4, three times, verse 17, verse 25, and verse 32, Daniel repeats this great line. The Most High rules the kingdom of men and gives it to whom he wills. And because God, because the Most High rules the kingdom of men, the Lord is especially opposed to the proud. Look at verse 31. While the words of Nebuchadnezzar's boast was still on his lips, this is the very moment the judgment of God drops upon Nebuchadnezzar. Verse 31. While the words were still in the king's mouth, there fell a voice from heaven, O king Nebuchadnezzar, to you it is spoken. You shall be driven from among men, and then the famous, and you shall be made to eat grass like an ox. There's a story of King Louis XIV of France. 
Louis had requested that at the day of his funeral service in the great cathedral of Notre Dame, that the whole cathedral would be darkened except one candle, one candle to be placed at the front right on his casket. And so as the court preacher, Mazelon, got up to give the funeral oration, he walked over to the casket, snuffed out the light, and began his message, only God is great. Only God is great. Friends, that's also what we need. Not only Nebuchadnezzar, not only Louis XIV, we are all... Nebuchadnezzar's. We all want to win. We all suffer from the pride of comparison with the next guy, with the next gal, with the next family. We all busy our lives making much of ourselves. We want to receive the credit, the glory, the honor, yet God opposes the proud. Part of his very nature is not to share his glory with another, be it Nebuchadnezzar, be it with the lamplighters, be it you when you want to burn the lamplighter's precious family photo like your deranged pastor. When we play the deadly trap of comparison, it's pride. When we complain that our life doesn't work like another life, it's pride. When we boast like Nebuchadnezzar that our own hands have done all this, it's always pride. Peter could write from experience when he says this in 1 Peter chapter 5. He says, Close yourselves, all of you, with humility towards one another. For God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. So we ask ourselves this morning, do we need grace? Do you need grace? Do you long to experience the grace of God? God gives grace to the humble. Oh, help our church be a kind of church characterized by this beautiful trait. What is God doing in this chapter? God is showing Nebuchadnezzar that he is not an almighty, self-sufficient, boastful ruler, but rather he is a creature who is needy, poor, and lowly compared to the most high of heaven. And so in this sense... We are all Nebuchadnezzars who need the grace, who need the mercy of one who walks straight out of heaven for our salvation to give us grace. Let's pray.